Take your seats. Please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Well, as we look at the book of Daniel, we see that there's a little something of everything in this book. We see spectacular dreams and visions. We see the most powerful man in the known world on his belly eating grass like an animal. We see a hand appear out of nowhere floating in midair writing on a wall. We see fire pits and lion's dens and men thrown into them. We see just gigantic, ridiculous metal statues. We see that there are interpretive difficulties and end times controversies. We see pride. We see folly. And for sure, we also see faithfulness. But if you were to ask me, my answer, hopefully not to your surprise, would be if we ask what primarily, what ultimately is the book of Daniel about, we would say it's about God. It's about God. It's about God's power. It's about God's grace. And these things particularly concerning God's kingdom. God's kingdom is prominent in these 12 chapters. As we read through the book of Daniel, we see the word king or kingdom and just an exorbitant amount of times, 246 times king or kingdom is used in these 12 chapters. I think God is trying to get our attention. The book of Daniel is about God's sovereign rule over the ever-passing away kings and kingdoms of this earth, and his ultimate plan to establish his never-ending kingdom and his eternal king so that his redeemed people will be with him forever. Again and again, we, we see kings rise and then kings fall. We see kingdoms built and then kingdoms ruined. It's just a cycle, one after another, king after king, kingdom after kingdom, and yet what we also see repeated throughout this book are words like these. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What we see as we get a window into Daniel's life is that his unwavering belief in the God of the Bible and in God's promises to triumph over all the kings and kingdoms of this world with his king and his kingdom, this is what drove Daniel to live out his life in accordance with what he believed. And friends, this is what we call conviction. Conviction. Conviction is the quality of showing that one is firmly convinced of what one believes. The quality of showing, don't miss that word, because that's what is the bedrock of conviction. It's a display. It's an outworking of one's beliefs. As we seek this morning together to be refreshed in our conviction, I want you to take this away from the message. When you're fully convinced that what you believe is really true, This will drive you to live in a way that demonstrates that you truly are fully convinced. Let me say that again. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. When you're fully convinced that what you believe is really true, this will drive you to live in a way that demonstrates you truly are fully convinced. In other words, your convictions drive your conduct. And when, like Daniel, we're driven by a kingdom-focused conviction, our lives will be marked by God-glorifying conduct. 
Daniel was a godly man sent to live in an ungodly place in the midst of God's people while they waited for God's kingdom. Sounds like us, doesn't it? And everyone, what we're going to see this morning is everyone has convictions and everyone's convictions drive their conduct. The question is, on what are our convictions based and what kind of life do they produce? And from this question, we're going to ask three questions this morning as we look at the the book of Daniel. And we're going to ask these three questions in order to examine our own lives to see if we are driven by the right kind of conviction leading to the right kind of conduct. All right, so three questions to examine our own lives to see if we are driven by the right kind of conviction that leads to the right kind of conduct. Question number one, do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying character? Do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying character? As others look at your life, and for sure, Behind closed doors is, is much more important. It's the foundation of who we are, but we'll save hypocrisy for another message. But when other people look at your lives, what kind of character do they see? What kind of qualities, what kind of virtues are evident in your day-to-day living? What would others describe as your character? By the time we get to chapter 6 in Daniel, we've seen his whole life play out. He, he comes to Babylon as a young man. By chapter 6, he's an old man. About 80, 90 years old. And he's spent about seven decades living out his faith. Living out what he believes about God, his Savior. We see in the beginning chapters of Daniel that Daniel is a man of principle. He comes to Babylon and he will not defile himself by eating the king's food. He says, no, my God has prescribed what I'm to eat and what I'm not to eat. And I ask, could I please just stick to my principles? We we see that Daniel's a man of prayer. We we see Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, who's going to come and tell me what my dream was and then interpret it for me? And Daniel goes before the Lord and he asks the Lord, he says, Lord, you're the revealer of all mysteries. Help me do this. We see that Daniel, not only as a man of principle and a man of prayer, but he's a man of perspective. Once the Lord gives him this ability to interpret the king's dreams, he doesn't take credit for, him, for it himself, but he acknowledges that anything he's able to do, he's able to do because the Lord has helped him to do it. We also see, among many other things, that Daniel is a man of persuasion. And what I mean by this is not that Daniel was a persuader, even though I believe he was, but that Daniel was a persuaded man. Daniel knew what he believed. Daniel believed in the promises of God. Daniel believed in the word of God. We, we see Daniel in this book reaching back, to reading the writings of Moses and, and being able to interpret the signs of the time, saying this is what Moses wrote about. He's, he reads Jeremiah as Jeremiah predicts the end of this captivity, and he says, okay, the time must be getting near because Jeremiah, in the word of God, said 70 years. 70 years are almost up, and I believe the word of God. Daniel was a man who was persuaded by the truths of God's word. And I would argue that given the weight of emphasis that is given in this book to kings and to kingdoms, that what shaped Daniel's convictions more than anything else was his kingdom focus. Daniel's kingdom focus. He knew 
that God was going to one day establish his everlasting kingdom with his everlasting king reigning and that this was a kingdom for his people forever. He was certain of this despite the exile of God's people into a country not their own, despite constant threats against those who would not conform, despite the roller coaster of kingdoms and kings all around him. Daniel was firmly convinced that the Lord would one day establish his king and his kingdom, and this drove him to live his life in the here and now in a manner that was worthy of the king. Daniel was a man of conviction. Of course, this influenced his character. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So he's setting up a government here, and and at the top of it all, there's three, and Daniel's one of the three, and then verse three says, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, obviously, this, this king saw something in Daniel, right? He could trust him. He saw that he was a man of his word, of integrity. He, he didn't just, you know, Darius here is inheriting a new kingdom. No longer is this a Babylonian kingdom. Now this is a kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And Darius, he looks at Daniel. He sees his character and he says, I want you, I want you to be in charge of my whole kingdom. Now, if this doesn't say enough about Daniel's character, look with me at the next two verses, beginning in verse 4. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They were, they were envious. They wanted to tear him down. It says, But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They couldn't find anything to accuse Daniel of. His character was above reproach. They examined his life. They took a close look at the records. They, they watched him and they watched him and they could find nothing. No, no record of lying, no proof of greed, no laziness, no evidence that he ever talked bad about anybody. Others wanted to assassinate his character and they just, they just couldn't. If they were going to get him on anything, they were going to have to get him on following the word of God. Oh, that this would be true of our character. This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 16, when he said, Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is what Paul talked about when he wrote to the Philippian church and he says, You are shining like stars in the universe. You are set apart. You look different from the world around you. This is what Peter was talking about when Peter wrote his first letter to the dispersed churches and he told them, he said, live your life in such a way that others are just left wondering, like, what in the world is going on? Just watching your life and, and they're just scratching their heads saying, why is your character like this? Why are you forgiving others who don't deserve 
to be forgiven? Why do you love other people more than you love yourself? Why are you generous when it means that you have to sacrifice? Why are you staying married when your marriage is hard? Why are you always trying to do what is right and good? Why is your speech always marked with, with kind words? Peter says to live our lives in, in this way so that when they ask us, we can say it's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of my king that I'm living the way I'm living. He's come. He has paid the price for my redemption. He has cleansed me from my sin. He has caused me to walk in a manner that is worthy of his name. He is the king. And he has a kingdom that is coming one day. And I believe that he is a God who rewards those who live for him. See, character is born out of kingdom-focused convictions. Does your character match this conviction? That's the question before you this morning. Does your character match this conviction? Does your everyday life reflect what you say you believe about the king of kings? When others watch you, what kind of character do they see? As I tell you, when they watch your life, they're getting a window into what your true convictions really are. You know, if, if you say that um, your life is one in which others matter more than yourself, and yet as others watch you, what they see is selfishness, this reveals that your conviction really is that you are number one. You know, if others watch us and they hear and see anger, then really what they're seeing is that we have an underlying conviction that we think we ought to be in control and everybody else has to do things our way. Conviction says, don't just tell me what you believe. Show me with the character that you have. Don't just tell me that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and you believe this. And then go, go and treat your wife the way that Christ would never, ever treat his church. Don't tell me that you believe God loves humility and then every time you enter the room, act as though you're the most important person in the room or you're the person who knows more than everybody else in the room. See, this list, it could go on and on, but what I hope you're seeing is, is that your life betrays your true convictions. How you act, what your character is, is what you believe. And we see such an encouraging example in the life of Daniel. He's carried away from Jerusalem into exile in Babylon and his convictions are in order when he leaves and they stay in order the whole time that he's there. He was watched and he was found to be without fault. He was faithful. There was no window for accusation. And we see that his character was this way because his convictions were kingdom focused. Are yours? Are mine? Now as the account continues, it's interesting to see these officials, they don't just make up lies about Daniel's character. Often that will happen. Right? We see that in other ways. We see that in our own lives sometimes. But here, instead, they devised this, this sneaky scheme to get Daniel the only way they could by forcing him to choose between obedience to God's word and something else. Look at verse 6. It says, These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, 
Oh, King Darius, live forever. And they do lie. Look, they say all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, they're all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And here we have it. Daniel's fate is sealed. What we're about to see, though, is that his conviction is so strong, he's committed to trusting in God even in the face of such wicked intimidation. This leads to our second question this morning. Do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying commitment? Do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying commitment? Do I have the kind of convictions that will bring me through when times get tough? See, one of the greatest dangers to living a life of conviction is fear of some kind of suffering. And this, this fear of suffering tempts us to compromise. The threat of persecution has weakened many as, as pain has a way of pulling one's commitment away from God-glorifying and toward self-preservation. Daniel's conviction was so strong that this wasn't going to happen. Look with me at verse 10. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Committed, right? What an example of someone whose convictions in the kingdom of God drove him to just be committed to worshiping the Lord no matter what the consequences would be. I really appreciated what one commentator said this week. Just summarizing this, he said, When devotion seemed only to promote disaster, Daniel remained faithful. That's what you and I need to do. We need to remain faithful even in the face of disaster to be devoted to our God. Daniel was committed to worship the Lord just as he had continually been doing, even when he was staring down death's barrel. He was ready to be martyred rather than abandon his commitment to God. Why? Because he was committed. He was committed. And what undergirded his commitment was his convictions about the king and his kingdom. Kingdom-focused conviction says, go ahead, bombard me with intimidation, threaten me with persecutions. I don't care. I'm committed to worship. God has declared there's a lasting kingdom and a righteous king who will reign forever. And you killing me will not keep me from living for him here and now and living with him for all eternity in his kingdom. Of course, the natural question for us is, will we share this same conviction? 
Will we remain steadfast in our commitment to the Lord even when we're faced with unjust, evil consequences? Sometimes we want to maintain our belief in Christ privately and, and we'll confess Him, but maybe only when others flat out ask us. Maybe some, some of you don't want others to think you're weird or you don't want to seem too religious, so you retreat and you keep your convictions just tucked away. This is not what Daniel did. Daniel knelt down before his open window and he prayed just like he always did. I was reading this account and I thought of someone some of you may know named Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey was a 16-year-old Queen of England in the 1500s. And her reign lasted all of nine days. She reigned. She didn't even seek the throne. She wasn't necessarily one that you would think fell in the natural order to ascend to the throne, but through an odd circumstance of events, she became the Queen of England at a time when there was just so much controversy, such tumultuous um, fighting between the Protestants and the Church of England. And, and after nine days, she was taken out of office. And Bloody Mary came to reign in her place. And Bloody Mary, one by one, just started slaughtering all those who had a true faith in the king and his kingdom. So I grabbed my biography and I dusted it off. And I just want to read a few accounts from this book. It's fascinating just to see this 16-year-old, after she's taken into custody and she's, she's, she's holding her own, arguing <laughs> just so faithfully from the, the biblical text against these older men that are sent to her. Say, just recant and we'll release you. She says, no way. No way, I will serve my Lord. And she's writing these letters to her sisters and to her father. And she's proclaiming her faith in Christ. And her husband has also been taken in and, and she knows that his execution is either right at hand or, or just about to happen. And she's watching by the window of her tower cell for him. And the writer says that Jane remained at her lonely post at the window. Her last tribute to Guilford. She knew it would not be long before they would return for her. Then she saw the axe man approaching. And behind him came the cart carrying Guilford's body. It rumbled past her window, taking its sad burden to St. Peter's. But the sight of the pathetic and mutilated form, roughly covered with a cloth and severed head beside it, was more than she could bear. Tears streamed down her face. Oh, Guilford, Guilford, the bitterness of death, she was heard to murmur as she turned away in horror from the ghastly scene. Then, composing herself, Jane wrote some last words in a small book on the table beside her. Oh, Guilford, the foretaste is not so bitter that you have tasted and that I shall soon taste as to make my flesh tremble. But that is nothing compared to the feast that you and I shall this day partake of in heaven. She had her eyes fixed on the kingdom. I just want to read one more to you. This is almost her very last words. It's her turn now to be beheaded. She turns and she addresses those watching and she says, I pray you all good Christian people to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman. 
And the narrator says, like so many other dying Christians, both before Jane and after, at this last moment of life, she knew of only one support for her soul, and so continued. I do not look to be saved by no other means, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. This is commitment. This is Daniel-like commitment in the face of wicked intimidation. And it's founded upon a kingdom focus, a kingdom that will never be shaken. I don't know that we'll ever face this kind of persecution. I pray to God that we don't. But even in our season, even in our lives, we face many threats in many ways as we live out our commitment to honor the Lord. To pray as we normally would, even when those who are watching and listening might disdain us. To say no and to not go along with the crowd when others are entering into sinful activities. You know, sometimes we make light of the kinds of uh, troubles that we face for our faith when we read accounts like Daniel and Lady Jane Grey. But the, the pain is, is still real. It's not easy when your family disowns you or treats you in such an awful way because of your faith in Christ. It, it's not easy when your friends repeatedly mock you or when you have to go to work or school every day not knowing what you're facing that day because of your faith in Christ. But listen, a, a firm conviction in the king and his kingdom will lead us to God-glorifying commitment even in the face of trouble. And I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be. And like I said, I don't know if we're going to face this kind of persecution. I don't know if, if any of us in this room or any of our children or children's children will have to face death in this country for following Christ. It, it may be. I do believe that the day is coming when in this country we will be put in jail for following Christ. I believe there will be loss of possession and opportunity as there already is starting to be. I believe that meeting together as a church to worship Jesus Christ is going to be more and more fought against by outsiders who don't love the Lord. Will we be committed? Will we have firm, kingdom-focused convictions? Well, in chapter 6, verse 11, we see what happens next. It says that these men, those other high officials and satraps that are conspiring against Daniel, it says they came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. We got him. Just like they knew what happened. They knew he was committed. In verse 12, it says, They came near and they said before the king, concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. See, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once the king makes a, declare, a declaration and signs it, that's it, it's done. He can't even go back on his own word. Verse 13, it says, They answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. 
and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You can just see him pacing back and forth. How can I get out of this? I mean, Daniel's my guy. I, I didn't intend for this to happen to Daniel. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So verse 16, the king commanded Daniel, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you the testimony of Daniel's life for the watching world. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. I guess the lions were hungry after all. Look, physical deliverance is never promised. It's God's choice. He chooses in some cases to deliver from danger and in other cases not to. I I just think Daniel must have, before he went into the lion's den, been thinking what his three friends were thinking. Just earlier on in chapter 3, his friends would not bow down to the golden image. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you won't bow down. Do you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to have to go into the pit of fire. And they say, fine, so be it. Listen, we will not bow down to the golden image. If you need to throw us in the fire, throw us in the fire. Our God will save us. And if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. That needs to be our perspective, our attitude as well, our commitment. I don't don't know what's going to happen here and now, but I will worship my God. Hebrews chapter 11 recounts the lives of many of the faithful And the author, you know, after telling us about some, gets to verse 32 in chapter 11, and he says, What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. He's like, I can't write about everybody. Verse 33, Who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. There's Daniel. Quenched the power of fire. There's Daniel's friends. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Okay, so here we see a switch. God decides some are delivered, some are not. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Kingdom focus. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What kind of convictions will we hold? Will we hold kingdom-focused convictions that lead to a commitment to God-glorifying conduct no matter what dangers face us? That is the question we're presented with as we look at the book of Daniel. All right, do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying character? Do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying commitment? And now question number three, if our lives are driven by the right kind of conviction leading to the right kind of conduct, do my convictions drive me to God-glorifying confidence? God-glorifying confidence. There's a little bit of overlap here, obviously. Um, there was some confidence going on in the past couple of points, but here we're looking particularly, particularly at confidence to proclaim the good news. Confidence to tell others about the king and his kingdom. Are we focused enough on the king and his triumphant kingdom that we're confidently telling others? See, Daniel's entire life was marked by his drive to share the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. That's the fourth pillar of our church. Daniel was an Old Testament evangelist. Daniel firmly believed in the kingdom to come and he didn't shy away from declaring it with confidence. In chapter 2, Daniel standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. He's interpreting his dream. Can you imagine? He has to tell this king, you're going down. But with confidence, look at verse 44. Daniel says, and in those days, so he's telling them about the kings and the kingdoms to come. And then he's saying at the end, in those days, in, in, in those those kings, in the days of those kings, the God of Daniel will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it, God's kingdom, shall stand forever. Going forward to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream. And Daniel is called again to interpret. And in verse 24, he says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. See, Daniel was firmly convinced that God was the king, the true king, and his kingdom was the only lasting kingdom. And he was declaring it to others with confidence. Chapter 5, we see Nebuchadnezzar has moved on. His son Belshazzar is reigning in his place. Belshazzar is the one who sees the writing of the hand on the wall. He doesn't understand what's being written. Daniel's called to interpret for him. And, and Daniel, before the second king here, reminds him of his father. In verse 21, he says, Your father, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Why? Because of his pride. And he's, and he's warning Belshazzar of his pride. He says, Until he knew that who? The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you know, you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them? And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel was confident to proclaim the king of kings. Skip ahead to chapter 6. After Daniel is rescued from the lion's den. It says in verse 25 the, that King Darius then he wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Okay, so this is not Daniel speaking here, but, but I would argue that the reason King Darius can say these things is because he first heard it from Daniel himself. Daniel was faithful year after year to proclaim the king and his kingdom to the point where even the, even the pagan king of the land knew what was true about Daniel's king. Look at chapter 7 and I just want to point out here, in, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so we're going a little back in time here, Daniel's not always in chronological order, especially in the last half of the book, but this is describing something that happened even prior 
to the lion's den incident. It says that Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And he goes on to tell of the four beasts and the kings and the kingdoms that would rise and fall. And if you look at chapter 7 verse 18, it says that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. In verse 27, again, proclaiming and declaring the king and his kingdom, Daniel says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Kingdom focus. Kingdom focus leads Him to be confident in declaring the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I skipped over verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Look at those. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now turn in your Bibles to Mark. The Gospel of Mark. I want to show you something. Chapter 14. Here Jesus is on trial. He's been arrested. He's he's standing before this phony court. He's standing before the high priest in Mark chapter 14 and verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the middle and he asked, in the midst, and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Direct quote. From Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was proclaiming Christ. Hundreds of years before the king would leave his throne and come to this earth to ransom his people. Daniel was confidently proclaiming the good news of the king and his kingdom. Jesus is the king. And when this is our conviction, this will cause us to live differently In Daniel chapter 9, we get a really rather large window into Daniel's prayer life. Again, this is before the lion's den. This this may even have been one of the prayers that he was praying in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem. And we don't have time to read the whole prayer, but I just want to draw your attention. Look at verse 17. Daniel says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, 
Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Because of the mercy of the king, he came and he died a death that we deserved. Because of the mercy of the king, he came and he opened our eyes to the glories of his coming kingdom. Because of the mercy of the king, he laid down his life and he took it up again so that we could have hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of and a place in the everlasting kingdom.